0: Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. I want to open up by reading from Isaiah chapter 55. For as rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Lord Jesus, there is power in your word and you, in another scripture, one who watches over it. So this morning, as we come, not only on any Sunday, but on a particular Sunday, with Hundreds of people, each with different needs and different concerns and different wounds and different hopes. To encounter your word is to encounter the power of God, which will not return empty. And so we ask that it labors in our hearts this morning. We do this expectantly, for we know this day more than others that your word has power to raise the dead. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I don't know if you have noticed, um, but I've started picking up that celebrity culture is a little different than it used to be uh, when I was growing up. And I'm not that old. I don't mean to be like the old timer in the midst of this, but it used to be for you to be a celebrity, you had to do something famous. You had to be good at something. You had to accomplish something. But what our media has allowed us to do is we've gotten to an age where people are now celebrities simply because they're known. Um, And I ran into this once when I was working in campus ministry, and I was talking to a college student about this individual, this influencer, as they use the language for. I said, well, did she win something? She's like, no, not really. Did she invent something? No, not really. Is She particularly gifted or talented in something, and she's like, no, not really. And then she introduced me to this new paradigm of this person is famous because she's famous. And as silly as that is to think about, someone being famous because they're famous, I wonder how many of us often import a similar understanding of knowledge, of report, to how we view Jesus, how we view the events of Resurrection Sunday. If you had to answer why Jesus is so popular, even across cultures and centuries, could you describe it? Why is it that across every area of Christian history, the church has seemed to base their calendar on this one day of remembering the cross and resurrection of Jesus? People know the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is famous, but is Jesus famous merely because he's famous? Or has Jesus done something? Has Jesus accomplished something? Why is he significant? And we've been working through the gospel according to Luke here at Sovereign Hope. And we're in Luke today. And ever since Luke chapter 4 verse 14, which is what we saw last week, the reports about Jesus are increasing. His fame is growing. Crowds are showing up as news is going out. But why? Why are people coming to see Jesus? Perhaps ask yourself that question today. Why are you here? Why have you sought out this place which seeks to make much of Jesus and introduce you to Jesus and remind you of Jesus? And what might you possibly hope to gain from it? Well, today Luke is going to begin to answer these questions for us by showing us a bit of what I call Jesus's ministry sampler. I had the privilege this past summer of going to an Indian restaurant and they offered a curry sampler. I, my wife and I love Indian food. There was a great Indian place that used to be downtown. And now, like everything else, it's become a dispensary. And so that has gone. But I went to this, uh, to, not to the dispensary. I went to this Indian restaurant. And I got, I got these curry samples, And they give you these like six bowls of individual curries. And they're small. They're small little cups. And I ate one. And it was so fantastic. But it was not enough to leave me full. Instead, I wanted to go to the next one. And so, any one of those samplings gave me an experience of what the whole kitchen was about, and yet, any one of them on its own was incomplete. And in the book of Luke, that's what we're encountering today in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. We are seeing little sample cups of Jesus' ministry. In one sense, they tell us everything that he's about, but on their own, they're incomplete. In other words, we're gonna see some wonderful, we're gonna enjoy some tasty snapshots of Jesus today, but the story is yet to come. There's something greater which Jesus has come to accomplish, but everything we encounter today is meant to scratch that itch, to show us who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And today we're gonna to see three pictures of Jesus' significance in these ministry samplers. We'll see first the power of Jesus, then we'll see the passion of Jesus. And lastly, we'll see the purpose of Jesus. So read with me our first few verses, beginning in Luke 4, verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word-possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, ha. If you're wondering, that's not, he's not joyful. He just didn't tell a good joke. It's actually this fearful comment. Some translations translate the word away from me. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. And they were all amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits and they come out. And the reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. And so there's a primary theme that actually runs through all of our verses today. But we were introduced to it heavily in this first passage. And I wonder if you noticed what it is. And that theme is the power the centrality, the astonishment of Jesus's words. Jesus's words here are attractive. People are enraptured by them. Jesus's words cast out demons. Jesus's words, as we'll see later, will heal the sick. And Jesus's words will display the glory of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. If you spent any time on the internet, or even reading bumper stickers on some people's cars, you've realized there's this innate tendency we have to divorce the ministry of Jesus from the words of Jesus. As if what Jesus did, that's what we need to capture. But his words, his teaching, his message, people can get lost in the fruit loops with that. So pay attention to his ministry. Do like he did, serve like he served, love like he loved, but his words, nah, take him or leave him. But what we see in this passage is we cannot divorce the man of God from the message of God. The two go together. They are part and parcel of the exact same thing. And this is the first demonstration of this union between the man of God and his words that we see today. And that is that Jesus' word has power over hearts and minds. If you were with us last week, you remember people in Nazareth marveled at Jesus' words. That's what we saw. But we're introduced to new things today in Capernaum that stand in contrast to what we looked at last week. And let me give you an example. We can marvel at many things. You can marvel at the preaching of a YouTuber who's telling you all about the lizard people who live under the streets of New York. We can even be gripped, entertained. But I'm guessing for most of us, those words have no authority or power. It's not changing anything. But did you notice Why the crowds were astonished here. They were astonished because Jesus' words possessed authority. His words had something. What was that something? It was the authority to grab one's heart and one's mind and say, Listen here. This is distinct. One of my favorite Old Minds is John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And part of his conversion story is that he was sitting in a cafe and heard two women outside discussing and studying the Bible. And the words of authority gripped him. And he said, it sounded to me as if they were speaking of another world. The word brought him under the authority of something else. And there's a tension in our text today. And that's in a passage where we, the readers, actually encounter very few words of Jesus himself. That is, that by the time the miracles are done, these big, flashy actions in the middle of it, what we are left to wonder about, what is left as the powerful weight of this passage is precisely the words of Jesus. You'll notice that this passage begins in verse 31 with Jesus's teaching, and it ends in verse 44 with Jesus's teaching. The miracles that we see in the middle serve the message of the man of God. The word of Jesus alone has power to change our affections and our understanding of who God is and what he's come to do in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not because Christians are uninventive or stuck in the mud that despite cultural, political, and technological changes over thousands of years, the Christian church has been creatures of the word. Where we come and we dedicate ourselves to preaching the word, reading the word, memorizing the word, sharing God's word. Why? Because it has authority and it has power. Consider this proof. Uh, In the 1740s, there's a missionary to the Indians who was now New Jersey and his name was David Brainerd. And God had placed this burden on uh, David to go share Christ with the Native Americans in that time. And so he went, but he had one big problem. He didn't speak the Native languages. And what he did speak, he did not speak well. And so he'd often spend days in the wilderness praying that God would overcome the language barrier and bring to him someone who could translate his teachings on the Bible and the Bible itself to the Native Americans. And one day God answered that prayer miraculously and he was provided with an interpreter. And so David Brainerd joyfully showed up to the assembly that night only to find that his interpreter was blackout drunk. And so as David heralded the words of God... This interpreter mumbled his way through this sermon, quite inebriated, but by the end of it, dozens and dozens of Native Americans got saved. Not culturally, not bought into the delusion of the funny talker, but saved by the grace of God. Why? Not because the interpreter had power, not because David Brainerd had power, but because the word of God had power to astonish minds and grab souls. This This is why we preach, we proclaim, we read, and we love God's word. I would hope that if you're here today, that this word astonishes you. That you are able to recognize that what you encounter in the new world of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not like any authority or any word you encounter in this world, but it is wonderfully distinct. And here's why it's distinct. I can preach God's word to you, but I am not God's word. All of us as believers in the Bible have God's word, but we are not God. But in this passage, Jesus' words were so rich with authority and power because Jesus not only had the word of God, but he was the word of God. The second person of the Trinity in the flesh. When Jesus spoke, God spoke. In discipleship, when your friend is reading scripture to you and calling you perhaps to repent, you can speak and God can speak. But when you drift and start talking about fantasy football, God stops to speak. There's no point in time where when Jesus spoke, God did not also speak because Jesus was always God. His relationship was unique and it's in the nature of his words and his position as the second person of the Trinity that we encounter the next display of power. And that is that Jesus' word has power over the satanic realm. Jesus' word in this passage casts out A demon. Maybe you're thinking, I should have picked a different church today because this just got weird. And that's not new. In fact, there's many people who look at this and they kind of, they say, we're scientific people now. We're too rational to believe in such thing as demonic possession. Maybe you've heard your fancy TikTok philosophers or your professors or even science teachers say, well, what we have in examples like this is not actually anything supernatural. These were people with seizures and epilepsy and these unscientific idiots who built civilizations and roads that endured for thousands of years, had, which is greater than anything Missoula has ever done. Um, they, they couldn't comprehend the science and so they made up excuses for it. But the forces of darkness thrive in just that, darkness. Satan loves it when you find supernatural things like this and say, that never happens. He would appreciate it if you never call into the light the workings of the devil, because in the light we see them for what they are. He loves it when we are so distracted by the magic of our phones and the physicality of intimacy that we disregard everything about the spiritual But, interestingly enough, in our modern, scientific, connected, physical world, interest in the demonic and the spiritual is not decreasing, but for the first time in a long time, it is increasing. David Brooks of the New York Times recently reported that as of 2018, more Americans believe in astrology than who attend mainline Protestant churches. Websites, which try to tell people that the location of the stars in the sky have a mysterious force to enhance and guide your life, have gone up 150% in traffic from what they were years ago. In 1990, only 8,000 Americans identified as practicing witchcraft or belonging to a pagan religion such as Wicca. But today, there are over 1 million people in America who identify with some sort of neo-Pagan witchcraft. More than that, you can go on Amazon and find where witchcraft and the occult are breaking into our mainstream desires. There are guidebooks for how you might be able to encant hexes and use the power of Satan to adopt and put into practice the social change we've always wanted to see. And while we might laugh at the application and audacity that social justice needs demonic influence, we ought not think that simply because it's silly, it is not also satanic. Instead, we should read what scripture says on this and consider that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities at war in the heavenly places. Dear Christian, there is such thing as the devil. And he has a real degree of authority in this world, and that authority is devastatingly powerful to us. But that authority we see in Luke 4 is nothing when compared to the word of Jesus. If you were with us last week, Jesus preached from Isaiah 61 to tell us a little bit of what he came to do. And we read this passage, this quotation from Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, verses 17 through 19. When the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor. If you're with us last week, the point of what Jesus is making is, look at all the mes in that passage. "I am the me. I am the one who has come to do what? to set people at liberty, to set captives free. This is a huge thing, even for the Jews who listen to this. Because we might say, well, they lived in the mystical age where every sort of physical malady was interpreted, interpreted as some sort of spiritual cause. There was lots of demonic influence in the Old Testament, and that's true. But you know what we never see in the Old Testament? Despite the mighty men and women that God used, no one does what Jesus just did. No one is able to cast out demons and kick Satan to the curb like this man. Here, not with a spell, not with a ritual, not with a magic stone, but with a word, the forces of darkness flee. Here is a new power. Peter tells us the enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Increase in interest in the satanic should not seem to us as a rise in fantasy, but it is an all too realistic glimpse into reality. And the purpose of this is not to make you fearful that the devil's going to get your kids or the devil's going to get you because the truth of the matter is apart from this word speaking liberator, he already has you. This doesn't mean, and the Bible never says that people who do not believe in Jesus are by nature possessed by the devil. Even in scripture, demonic possession, possession is a very isolated and rare event in the, the history of what we see in scripture. But what the Bible does teach us is that each and every one of us at one point in our life is under the authority of the devil, under his influence. Consider Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. I'll actually pick up in verse one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all once walked not as autonomous, liberated free thinkers. We walked under the influence of the spirit of the power of the air, the spirit of the sons of disobedience. We all start there. Regardless of what family we're born into, what culture we belong to, or the income bracket we will aspire to, we start in bondage. But Jesus came to liberate us. Look at how Paul pulls these themes together in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 6. In their case, that is of the unbelievers... The God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are blinded, our eyes are dim, and what saves us? The light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This man who comes with a word of authority to Free us from spiritual darkness so that we might finally have freedom. Jesus came to give freedom to those who are spiritually enslaved, to eyes that are spiritually blinded. Here is Jesus stronger than anyone or anything we can encounter in the world. Jesus not only showed the power over the spiritual realm, but his word also has power over the physical realm. This is our last glimpse into Jesus' power where we see that Jesus' word has power over sickness and suffering. Look what happens next in verses 38 through 39. And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. We'll actually meet Simon a little later. It says, Peter, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And so Jesus goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who's sick with a high fever, so sick that we know when Jesus had to stand over her that she couldn't sit up. She was laying down. She couldn't move. That's how bad the fever was. And what did Jesus do? He rebuked the fever and it left her. You all met Paul, our stunning man in plaid today. Paul's a pastoral resident here. He's also an ER nurse. Paul has encountered many high fevers. Paul, how successful have you been yelling at them? Probably not. Never in the history of anyone, despite how inconvenient fevers are, have been able to rebuke a fever out of someone. Why? Because Paul and us are not Jesus. And Jesus here, God himself with his word, calls sickness out of someone. This is astounding because we see in the book of Acts that Jesus' disciples heal the sick. But what we never see is them rebuking it. Why? Because they too are not Jesus. They can heal in the name of Jesus, but they are not Jesus. Jesus is so distinct from anything else that his attitude, his opinion of sickness is powerful enough to cause it to leave somebody. Wouldn't that be great if our emotions actually manifested themselves in this world? Actually, that would be terrifying, wouldn't it? (laughs) But here, Jesus' distaste, his rebuke is so powerful that sickness flees. And here we see the power of Jesus' words. Power to grip our hearts, power to command evil spirits, power to heal us from sickness. I got a tour once of a power plant, and the guide brought us into the middle where the coal-burning furnace was. And behind these layers of steel and iron, there's this tiny window, probably the size of a tennis ball. And you could look through what was probably an immense distance of protective things, and all you saw was this burning light. And that was the coal- furnace that was burning that was what brought power to everything else and here what we see in the power of Jesus's ministry is the blazing center of all the power in the universe we don't see it in full we see it through a small little piece but that power is here but more than seeing Jesus's power we also see his passion this is the second sampler the second portrait of Jesus's distinction the passion of Jesus Read with me verses 39 through 41. So we're going to pick up after he has rebuked the fever. He says, he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And so we just stressed Jesus's authority in the previous passage. And if you're in tune with kind of the cultural tumult of our day, we don't like the idea of authority. Why is that? Because people who have authority have power and do terrible things. But the problem is not authority in and of itself. The problem is the character of the person who has authority. The problem is is when the passion of the person, what they desire to do reveals a character that is less than perfect. When imperfect people get access to authority and power, there's a tendency to abuse it. But actually in Jesus' passion here, in what drives Jesus, we get a glimpse into his character. Do you see the character of Jesus through which all of his authority and power flows? Because here we see the one who came to rebuke sin is also the one who came to touch sinners. This is incredibly beautiful. The one who came to rebuke sin is also the one who touches everyone who comes to him. Now, it's obvious to us that unclean spirits are part of the evil realm. We get that. That's pretty self-evident. But so too are diseases and sickness part of the economy of evil. Now we need some nuance here. This doesn't mean that anyone who is sick or who has a disease is diseased because they are actively sinning. Nor does it believe that, well, at some point you sinned and this is God punishing you for that sin. But it does mean that all sickness, all suffering, and all disease exists because sin has stained every aspect of our world. We hurt and are hurt because sin hurts when God created perfection in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, these things didn't belong. These things do not belong to God. They are foreign to God. There was no suffering. There were no diseases. Why? Because there's no place for it in the midst of God's perfection. Sometimes we do suffer because we sin. But a lot of the time, we simply suffer because sin has ruined what God created to be perfect and here we have Jesus through whom all things were created we saw last week in our memory verse was not anything made that was made through him and here we see this this Jesus who created perfection that was spoiled by sin has a passion towards sin doesn't he he rebukes it he rebukes the demon he rebukes the sickness don't pass over this We're here on Easter Sunday. You've probably picked up already that Jesus came to save us from the effects of sin. But do you realize, not just that Jesus has come to save us from it, but do you realize that your Lord, the Savior, hates the effects of it? Jesus didn't say, all right, boss is here. Spirit, I'm gonna have to ask you to leave. The kingdom's coming. Let's go. All right, fever lady, the king's here. Time to serve. Get up off the mat. No, he rebukes it. His emotions are turned against it. Jesus is impassioned against all that would harm his people and pervert the perfection of God. Jesus knows exactly why he's here. He knows he's here to defeat sin. He's a good theologian. He knows that there is a real resurrection of the dead. For all who hope in him, he knows that the coming kingdom of God alone is the place where all perfection is restored. He knows the end, but in the midst of it, he still hates the effect of sin. Your savior empathizes with the wounds of sin and suffering in your life. He came to die because sin is painful and no one cares about stopping the pain at its source like Jesus. This is where the power of Jesus meets the passion of Jesus and it is a wonderfully beautiful thing. But you might ask if Jesus hates the effects of sin, why is it here? Why do I hurt? Why do I wander? And here's the tension that only the gospel solves, and that is that even though Jesus hates sin and suffering, his power is so profound and his passion so motivating that he intends to use and has purposed and foreordained that the weapons of sin and suffering might be turned on the devil himself. Jesus will use evil suffering in this world as the very spear upon which he will conquer sin, death, and the devil forever. Jesus at the hands of evil men will be put to death in a mock trial. And he put himself to this task because he hated sin and suffering so much that he suffered in the place of sinners, at the hand of sinners, with the pain of sinners for the purpose of saving sinners through the very death that you had won by your own rebellion. And this triumph, not using his divine glory to deliver himself from sin and suffering, but in his divine purpose using sin and suffering humiliates the evil one. Consider what Paul says in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him that is Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus and his passion has come to mock the devil by saving sinners. He has come to rebuke sin and save the lost. And the beautiful paradigm is this sin-crushing, Satan-killing, holy-burning son of God. In verse 40, reaches out and touches sinners and heals them. If you know anyone who's had to undergo the pain of chemotherapy, you know the paradigm of poison. That sometimes, in order to kill what is dangerous, you have to harm what is good. But here we see the unique weight of Jesus Christ. Though we are sinful, Jesus, by the work of his cross, is able to touch us and heal us without destroying us. Jesus rebukes sin. He crushes the devil. He destroys death. He will judge those who refuse to come to him. But to all who come to him, to all who are touched by his gracious hands, you will have the punishment of sin removed without being poisoned in the process. How so? Because of Good Friday. Because of the day when Jesus drank the poison for you. He died the death we needed to die to rid ourselves of our sin so that in accepting his death, we now receive his life. Have you ever wondered what it might be to be touched like this? You wondered what Jesus would do if you come to him to experience his healing? Or what it might cost you to come into his kingdom? But don't we see here? In one sense, it's disruptive. But in another sense, it's restorative. Here is a man who is violently thrown down by an evil spirit. But what does it say? He suffered no harm. Even though a woman was incapacitated on a bed, at the word of Jesus, she was not only healed, but fully restored. Restored to what? To service. To serve Jesus and those who are with him. It might seem that in coming to Jesus, you lose everything you want. That in submitting to this king, You'll become a shell of what you thought you would be or ever wanted to be. But it is Jesus who has come to touch you by faith and bring you into the life you were always meant to live. It is Jesus who restores, even though it looks disruptive. It is Jesus who frees us from sin and commissions us to service to him. Now make no mistake. Whether you have walked with Jesus for a day or for a decade, you have probably realized that following Jesus is painful. It's painful to say no to sin. It's painful to say no to the wicked, perverted desires of our heart. It's painful to confront and repent of our pride. But it's healing. You see, because of the cross... Following Jesus may be painful, but for those who are saved by him, it is never harmful. Because when we get to glory, there is nothing that following Jesus has cost which will not be repaid tenfold by the Savior who loves us. This is our hope that the passion of Christ restores us, heals us, and satisfies us. Let's continue looking at verses 42 and 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So by the end of this passage, we'll categorize. There's three main characters. There's Jesus, there's the demons, and there's the crowd. At some level, one of those three is always there. Jesus is always interacting with one or the other. And what's interesting is Jesus kind of stiff arms both of the other characters, doesn't he? He says, demons, don't talk anymore. Be quiet. Be quiet. He rebuked the demons, even though they seem to have the clearest understanding of who Jesus is. It is the demons who identify him as the Holy One of God, as the Son of God, and as the Christ. And the sick and diseased, when they try to keep Jesus from leaving, Jesus stiff-arms them and he says, I need to go. So what's going on here? Well, first we see that Jesus rebukes the theologically arrogant but lovingly bears with humble sufferers. Look at what James says about demons in James chapter two, verses 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. We see in James one, demons are wonderfully monotheistic, perhaps even Trinitarian. We see in Luke chapter four that the demons clearly understand the role of Christ as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the Holy One of God. Three times it is the demons who point out the theological accuracy of Christ, and yet in their theological clarity, they see no theological need. Though they see Jesus as the Savior, they do not perceive themselves to need to be saved by him. Though they experience him as the authority, he is casting them out. They have no desire to submit in relationship to his authority. There is no group of individuals, spiritual or human, who Jesus is more brutal with than those who arrogantly assume that they know Jesus without ever submitting their lives to Jesus. You believe there's a God? Good. Do better. Demons believe. Christians worship. Jesus has no time for the arrogant in spirit. He will rebuke you. And if that's you, what might it it look like? It looks like transitioning out of theological arrogance into humility. And in this passage, we see the humble are also the sufferers. As firm as Jesus is in the arrogant in spirit, he is gracious with the humble sufferers. Notice the time frames Luke gives us. Verse 40, this scene begins when the sun was setting. That's about when Tyler sits on the couch and his eyes begin to sink back into his head. And we have another time marker. All this healing happens. In verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. In other words, Jesus healed all throughout the night. And more than that, Let's look back. Let's do some Bible study here. What does it say? They brought those who had any who were sick with various diseases and brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. As far as I could tell and looking at the Gospels, this is the only place in Jesus' ministry where he healed every single person who came. This is astounding. But, Jesus knew that these weak sufferers who came to him in a humble realization of their own imperfections and wants did not fully understand the salvation that Jesus was to give. Jesus didn't rebuke them in their lack of understanding. If you've ever wondered how Jesus handles ignorant theologians, it's graciously. It is the arrogant ones who are in trouble. None of us come to Jesus with a perfect picture of who he is. None of us do. We can come with a right picture, but none of it is perfect. None of it is full. And to come to Jesus in humble need is to see a Savior who wants to help you understand more clearly. For those who are aware of our own lack, there should be nothing more attractive to us than seeing the passion and power of a savior like this, a savior who puts things back that were broken, a savior who, who relieves what was hurting. And we live in a world where the effects of sin and the condemnation of it poison every aspect of our life. Even the best of our days, we are confronted with the weaknesses we have in the flesh. And here is the one person who can finally do something about it. But it seems that person is leaving. But what Jesus is gently trying to show these individuals is that he is after something far more powerful and far better than temporary physical healing. Now here's this tension. Jesus always sits in tension. Jesus stopped to heal the wounds because they were significant. But Jesus also moved on to something greater because those wounds were still superficial. Superficial. Jesus holds that tension. He knows that the needs of your life, where you are wounded by sin or by the sins of others, he knows that there is a greater need still. And yet Jesus also acknowledges their significance. But what Jesus wants to do in this text by dealing with the superficial is to show you the something more that is offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our last point this morning, the purpose of Jesus. Look again at what he says to those who would wish to keep him in verses 43 through 44. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Why did Jesus leave Why did he stop healing? Because he was called to preach good news. That is the word, the gospel. The good news of what? Of the kingdom of God. To whom? To everyone. To all the other towns. Jesus' primary purpose was to good news To announce the beautiful splendor of the kingdom of God to anyone who would hear it. This means that when Jesus healed, he healed in service of the preaching of the good news. Jesus didn't preach in order to heal. He healed in order to preach. What does this mean? This means when you are online and you are on a website and that website thinks you are a bot or a robot, it asks you to do what? Validate yourself. And so what do we do to set ourselves apart from robots? We copy numbers on a screen. We click on the things that look like a traffic light. What does Jesus do to validate his messianic identity and his gospel message? He rebukes sin. He heals the sick. He brings sight to the blind. He raises the dead. You know what validates Jesus and his message? His miracles. They are an end to them they're not an end to themselves. They're meant to draw us back to the wonder of the word so that we might see how profoundly good news this word is. It is as if it says to each and every one of you, imagine if you were dead, and dying with a fever. Imagine if you were blind. Imagine if you had no autonomy in your life. What would it feel like to be healed? What would sight finally excite in you? What would relief finally free you to do? What would healing feel like? And here when Jesus moves on to preach the gospel, he says, Every time you are saved from sin by the gospel, it is greater than that. Jesus came in his miracles to remove the symptoms as proof that he alone can remove the problem. And in our lives, God might by grace relieve symptoms of sin in various places and in various ways, but our greatest hope now is that the problem is removed. Jesus not only calls us away from our sin, but he restores to us what was broken by inviting us into what is holy, perfect, and that is the kingdom of God. This is good news, not of life in Missoula. Good news, not of Sovereign Hope Church. Good news, not of American capitalism. Good news, not of Russian socialism. This is good news of the kingdom of of God. It's good news of a place. And it's not a place where some demons are evicted and some remain. It's not a place where some have sight and some don't. The kingdom of a God is a place where we are finally with the king in his perfect authority and there's no more sin and no more death and no more unbelief and no more suffering. Jesus' miracles and his message are telling them of that world, of that experience. They are postcards from the king saying, look at what's there. Come and experience something better than all of this. He shows us the beauty of belonging to this kingdom. Every single person who Jesus healed in this passage died. But Jesus came to show that in the gospel, there is a hope beyond death. That there is a greater healing and it comes through the cross. And this is why Resurrection Sunday is such a big deal. Because it proves without a shadow of a doubt that there is not only a place where fevers leave, but there's a place where death goes to die. That there is something far more miraculous for you to see than a demon coming out of a man, and that is a king coming out of a grave. It takes some sort of something, some sort of audacity To be the guy who commands an evil spirit with his word, who causes a fever to flee with a rebuke, and whose touch causes the effects of sin to melt away, and then to stand up, bold-faced before those people, and say, you haven't seen anything yet. But that's exactly what Jesus does. The beauty of Jesus is that his power frees us from sin. His passion touches the humble, and he invites us into the kingdom of God with certain hope through the message of redemption. That right now in this world, we might have the solution solved. That our sin might restore us to God, and that one day, one glorious day, we don't only believe in the kingdom, but we belong to the kingdom. We are in the place where everything looks like the empty tomb where we are not astounded at miracles anymore, for there is no purpose for miracles. There is nothing to heal, no wound to move towards, no insufficiency to correct. And what does it look like to come into this kingdom? It looks like coming by the merit of the king, by responding to his offer of grace, by going to the one who can heal you with his word. It is joyfully placing your lives under his authority so that like Peter's mother-in-law, when you are healed, you rise to serve in newness of life. This is the word of God that bears fruit. This is the message of salvation to all who have any sickness. This is where our spiritual needs are met and the promise of a physical kingdom to come. You see, life draws out gospel hope. When I got here today, I made a terrible decision. I walked in this sanctuary and it was really, really cold. And I was cold. And then I turned up the heat. And now all of you are suffering for it. <laughs> it's warm in here. We cannot go through the course of a day and come any and come close at all to perfection. <laughs> and when we encounter things that seem out of place as silly as it is as being a little sweaty under the armpits or as serious as it is saying goodbye to a loved one or suffering silently with a terminal illness. Those wounds cause us to long for gospel hope. Hope that comes only out of an empty tomb, out of the hands of one whose purpose was to get us to the kingdom of God. And so if you have that hope, What do you do? You do what everyone in this text did who saw Jesus' goodness. You bring others to it. You get your sick friends and you bring them to Jesus. You get Jesus and you bring him to your mother-in-law. You get people to the good news of the gospel because this is better than life. Itself. This is the reason Jesus came to die. This is the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when I speak on this issue on this day from this text, I realize that my words have no authority. That I could continue to talk for hours and hours. But my word on its own is nothing but your word. Your word in the gospel of Jesus Christ saves souls and brings us to the kingdom of God. It solves needs, it converts dead hearts, it opens blinded eyes. So Lord, I ask that that word would be accomplished today apart from my weaknesses and in the midst of your people. We thank you that this Sunday we celebrate a Jesus who beat death and calls us to a place where we too might be free from sin, its consequences, and its punishment. We pray this in your name, amen.